The Crit from Open City is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The school's estate is crumbling, and new revelations over the risks of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, RAC, have forced closures across the country, stoking alarm among parents and forcing the government into crisis. Remediation could cost billions of pounds, and meanwhile, a whole raft of under-maintained post-war buildings could now face demolition. Is decades of underinvestment about to come crashing down? This is The Crit from Open City, a podcast dedicated to unraveling the big stories impacting our built environment. Today, we're looking at how our schools came to be in such a sorry state, the origins and impacts of RAC, and what all this means for our wider built environment. I'm joined by Dr. Ruth Lang. Ruth is a lecturer in professional practice at the RCA and London School of Architecture and lead researcher for low-carbon housing at the Design Museum. Her PhD in architectural history focused on the London County Council's school building programme after the Second World War. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thanks. It's great to be here. I think we've got a lot to talk about. Before we get into the meat of the story, perhaps you could tell us a bit about this material. What exactly is RAC and how does it differ from regular concrete? Yeah, who'd heard of RAC a fortnight ago? And yet somehow it seems to have slipped into normal conversation. So RAC, as you said, stands for Reinforced Autoclaved Aerated Concrete. And the structure's often been compared to that of a whisper or an aero chocolate bar. It's often used in wall and ceiling panels primarily. And unlike concrete, which is often poured in situ or on site, rack is made in factories where concrete panels are pumped with gas and then fired, much like a brick. So that's the autoclaving part to speed up the curing process so production can be faster and the relative strength of the material used is increased. If it was invented now, it might actually be seen as a wonder material because the off-site construction speeds up production lead-in time, prefabrication minimises the time taken for installation, which is obviously critical in schools construction, which often takes place during the holidays. There's a reduction in volume of the cement used. And because it's a lighter panel, the overall structural demands are also reduced. So you can minimise the sizing of frames and foundations and use less material all round. It also has improved fire, thermal and acoustic insulation over solid plank construction. So it does have a lot of advantages over concrete, but obviously it has its problems. So this kind of sometimes hidden, sometimes indiscernible thing, it's obviously got echoes of the, of the asbestos and the kind of scandals around that. What are the specific specific risks associated with rack and how concerned should we be? I mean, is this a thing of just leave it in place and it's okay? Or is this a thing of it needs to go everywhere? This is a really good point because at the moment there's a possibility of collapse without warning, which particularly in a school environment is especially concerning. The failure actually results from long-term degradation and where it's been used in walls and roof panels, water's managed to get in to cause expansion of the uh, cement product itself, but also which affects the reinforcement bars, um, causing carbonation where the water reacts with the steel reinforcement and rusting. In 1996, the Building Research Establishment Report found failures in housing and school construction were flagged for a visually poor condition, which then should be inspected every year. And the Institute for Structural Engineers report found that the short-term exposure to moisture reduced the strength by about 13%. But there's also an interesting point about long-term exposure to polluted air, which reduces its strength by 40%. And at the risk of opening another can of worms, this might be another great argument for low-traffic neighbourhoods, especially around schools. 
So the probability in some cases exacerbated by retrofit works where they've added materials and insulation to roofs ostensibly to improve the building performance, but basing it on the assumption that it's ordinary concrete. So without taking into account that the type of concrete can't take this additional load. And there's been a lot of problems with construction and installation where it's been found not to be bearing properly on the structural supports. And this is only evident if you actually open up a lot of the wall structures, which is incredibly destructive. Um, according to BRE, some of the wall panels at the time were not up to standard at the time of installation, and many of the contractors who installed them have since gone out of business, so there's no recall to go back to them for aspects of compensation. So it's really requiring a programme of surveying and maintenance to ensure that the buildings are structurally sound. The problem is such procedures are not very visible in terms of investment, and politicians prefer to be able to point at shiny new schools in order to be seen to be doing something. And this celebration of privileging new build is, of course, really bad in the time of a climate emergency and we really need to reconsider what we value in terms of investment. I, I think there's echoes with asbestos. Asbestos is still present in a lot of buildings. Is, is this a similar or greater risk? I think this is a really good point about the relationship to asbestos that it is a problem that we are aware of, but doesn't necessarily mean that we have to demolish the buildings where it's found. Catherine Croft of the 20th Century Society has flagged this as a similar issue to the high alumina cement concrete problems, which hit the headlines in the 1970s, which was kind of the rack of its time. It was seen as absolutely catastrophic, but with investment in proper research and care, they managed to pinpoint strategic interventions to preserve the buildings rather than to resort to wide-scale demolition, and issues have been mitigated as a result. So there's about 50,000 and buildings with HAC, which continue to remain successfully in service today in the UK. And in this way, Michael Grove is wrong. We haven't had enough of experts. Actually, we need more of them in order to be able to make sure that we don't have to resort to demolition. Now, it's interesting you described sort of the origins of RAC and what it is. And obviously, it's a comparatively low cost material, which could be described as a wonder material in the modern age if it was actually installed and maintained properly. But and obviously, that is the point, this maintained properly. We know that in the post-war era, obviously, there was a, a focus on post-war austerity and need to get things going cheap. But obviously, they would have known at the same point that there wasn't much money for maintenance in the long term. Also, having looked out the window, known that it's a particularly damp, windy and wet island, uh, both outside and often sadly inside the buildings uh, where people operate. So... Um, how did we end up in the situation where this material became so prevalent uh, in a context where it is so clearly uh, inappropriate? It's so prevalent in schools buildings because obviously after the war there was an enormous amount of rebuilding. For me, one of the really interesting things about the presence of RAC has been the number of schools in Essex where this has been found. Essex, like London, undertook the large-scale construction project after the war because of the population boom for London overspill, uh, which really demanded a kind of system building thinking in their approach. So of the 147 schools in England that was published on the 30th of August, about a third of them are in Essex. And just to put that in context, the next largest cluster is in Kent, where there's only nine. So because of this large scale rebuilding, you get families of building types and construction methods in different counties, including Hertfordshire, London and Essex particularly. And they resorted to knowledge sharing of detail and spatial design in architectural departments or repeated use of construction systems due to the economy 
economies of scale that this afforded. So there's a process of standardization and rationalization, which was used as a business case. But that standardization and rationalization is also something which underpinned the teachings of the Bauhaus, which is something that obviously architects were ascribing to quite a lot at the time. So on superficial exploration, it seems like Essex hit upon using rack just as part of this approach of standardization, which favored prefabrication and high-speed building and held really high hopes for the product benefits that we were discussing previously. But to find a definitive answer, I think we need to really map the current schools against the systems employed. Fantastic. I mean, it's certainly interesting to think about how it fitted into a a cultural drive within architects and within the specifiers and the the commissioners of new buildings. Um, A big sort of elephant in the room is these companies that don't exist anymore who were supplying it. So what kind of influence did they have on decisions that are being made? Because if we look at a completely different topic, which is post-war prefabricated housing, not necessarily rack, but this is prefabricated housing, we know that there was a lot of poorly constructed panels which didn't line up, which resulted in buildings having to be pulled down across the country. And we also know that some of the construction companies in that instance are even still around today who are involved in it. But, you know, where there's a big spending program, then there are suppliers and the suppliers necessarily do have some impact on where the spending goes. The attribution of these failures to design is really missing that bigger picture that you're talking about. And there are always points, as I think we found particularly in relation to the Grenfell inquiry, of supply chains and of other consultants and of installation issues, which all form this kind of greater ecosystem of construction, which constitutes architecture. Um, The previous president of the Institute of Structural Engineers, Dr. John Roberts, said that rack should never have been used in permanent buildings as a replacement for standard concrete products and has criticised the paucity of information that was given from manufacturers at the time. But as we've said, it's not necessarily a problem product and it was seen to have many benefits. There's much made about the short lifespan of the product, but this is actually normal for building components. More often than not, these are only certified to last for 30 to 50 years anyway. And this is an issue which is always unquestioned. It's actually inherently problematic in a climate emergency, of course. Maybe this is the warning signal we needed to be mindful of greater design for longevity and climactic reasons. Yeah, that is what was quite striking about some of the coverage when people were sort of shocked about it being described as a 30-year material. And it's like, well, any commercial office building, pretty much everything is on a 25-year or like a commercial office lease kind of lifespan. Yeah, and this is another really interesting point about why we're finding it in public sectors schemes rather than private sector schemes. One is because the public sector is actually asking the question and sending out questionnaires asking for further information about the buildings which they ostensibly own. Uh, Whereas that's not something which is centralised within the private sector. So we're not going to get the answers on the same level. But the other point is that private sector buildings obviously have a vested interest in their upkeep and maintenance, whereas public sector is going to try and stretch the lifespan of any material or building to try and minimise capital expenditure. So there's going to be a huge disparity between public and private impact. So the government's response to the rat crisis has been met with alarm and frustration in varying degrees. Um, Worried parents were left in the dark for days before the official list of schools was actually publicly revealed. Schools themselves were given very little warning before these closures were announced. Knowledge of the safety concerns surrounding RAC, however, dates back 
decades. Um, so in 1995, uh, the structural engineer Victor Whitworth wrote to the Journal of the Institution of Structural Engineers with the message, fellow engineers, beware, after inspecting some schools containing rack. Well, could have added parents, politicians, everyone uh, into that declaration. So in 2018, the roof of a primary school in Gravesend partially collapsed. And a year later, the Standing Committee on Structural Safety, that SCOS, issued a report stressing the significant risk of failure of these rack planks. Off the back of the SCOS report, the Ministry of Defence began investigating the problem uh, and their report recommended that all rack planks installed before 1980 should be removed from their estate. In September last year, the Office of Government Property issued a safety briefing to all property leaders warning about the dangers of this material. It read, quote, rack is now life expired and liable to collapse. Um, so, Ruth, it's pretty undeniable that rack it's been on the government's radar for quite some time. Um, so why is it here in September 2023, it's only been in the last two weeks that this issue has suddenly come to the fore in such a prominent way? You're right. Although we've known about the potential failure of rack for a while now, guidance has been that risk assessments needed to be undertaken to ascertain if the structure was safe and therefore could continue to be used. However, over the summer, it's transpired that rack previously considered low risk collapsed, forcing reconsideration of all the assessments that have been taking place to date. The big issue, of course, was timing. Falling at the start of term is one of the highest points of disruption in the year. What's quite shocking is how this wasn't a sudden failure, but a slow burn issue. All the early warning signs were there, but not heeded. Something that could have been a minimal intervention has had catastrophic consequences as a result. Gillian Keegan has stressed that the disruption to children must be minimised and that they'll spend what it takes to keep kids safe. But this is too far down the line, kind of shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. The government had the potential to undertake these interventions earlier if they were to minimise disruption and expenditure, but they hoped they didn't have to and that the problem wouldn't arise. And it's an age-old issue, which Pete Apps picked up in the title of his book on the Grenfell tragedy, that ministers ask you to show me the bodies, meaning that something really needs to be a critical problem before expensive and extensive changes can be pushed through or paid for. And that's not a sustainable rate to run any government economically or socially. So Gillian Keegan, uh, who's now the fourth education secretary in the last year, has pledged to rebuild all schools, quote, that need it, end quote, okay? And the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has promised to, quote, spend what it takes, end quote. Uh, Ruth, what do you make of that response from the government? Um, what needs to happen to get this crisis under control? Yeah, I mean, it's a bold and eyebrow-raising promise, given the previous woeful undervaluing of the education sector's needs. Uh, I think about £1.7 billion a year is spent maintaining and improving the condition of schools buildings and grounds and about 0.6 billion is on rebuilding schools so this would be a real step change for them and i'm not entirely sure where the money's coming from yet i mean there's the sort of echoes of the during the pandemic when the government said like we will do what it takes to get through this and that did land quite well in polls. You know, people were reassured and convinced and they did spend a lot of money on various different initiatives. Yeah, that went really well. Don't <laughs> yeah. yeah. remind me again about those silos full of just like useless PPE. But I mean, I think... A lot of the spending cuts that have been made are very short-termist and it's essential to take this longer view considering about how costs can be minimised through a wider programme of survey maintenance and strategic intervention so you save on more costly rebuilding in the long run. And just to think about that, I mean, I've seen an article recently about like a flurry of activity with prefabricated suppliers and it's like a kind of gold rush uh, for a certain short-termism solution. 
I mean, is there a risk that an awful lot of money is going to be spent on temporary things which aren't necessarily environmentally or socially or, or from a health perspective the solutions and the best value for money for what the public pound should be spent on? Absolutely. My first instinct was for a concern for the impact on the future of schools when Gillian Keegan was on Radio 4 last weekend advocating for using value-engineered modular construction to replace the affected school structures. It definitely seemed like a knee-jerk reaction and it's not actually solving the issue but creating a very expensive response which simply moves the real solution into the next election cycle, if anything. I think it's a very damaging proposition. The standardised approach is likely to be akin to the Terrapin classrooms of the 1990s, not the stimulating and responsive education environments befitting to contemporary education that our nation's youth deserve. So unless we build in a way which is future-proof, we're going to face this problem again further down the line. Prefab modular can be very effective if used correctly. And actually, in our exhibition on how to build a low-carbon home at the Design Museum at the moment, we demonstrate a couple of these examples and show how they're put to use in combating embodied carbon and housing construction, which is equally applicable to schools. But Sally Wheel pointed out in The Guardian last week that the Sir Frederick Gibbard School in Harlow, which is again in Essex, uh, opened in 2021, having cost £29 million to build and has already been closed, as has Buckton Fields Primary School in Northampton, which opened two years ago, and Haygrove School, an academy in Bridgewater in Somerset, which opened the year before. Two primary schools have actually had to be demolished before completion. These all use exactly the latest modular off-site construction methods, which are favoured to solve the rack issues. Their failure has been attributed to their inability to withstand extreme events such as weather and vehicle impact. So we're actually building badly, even with contemporary technology. And it's not necessarily the materials that are the problem, but the procurement of these structures and the construction of them, which needs closer examination and a radical overhaul if we're going to avoid being back here under different circumstances in the not too distant future. Yeah, I'm really glad that we've got onto the topic of procurement. Now, there was a massive school rebuilding program within recent history. Um, following the upheavals of the 2010 election, uh, one of the first things the new Conservative and Liberal Democrat uh, coalition did um, was to scrap the uh, the Building Schools for the Future program. So uh, this was like a £55 billion program, a uh, very ambitious program, but also, you know, contentious program uh, when it came to procurement, uh, which had been initiated by the previous Labour government. Um, so the scrapping of that in 2010 led to the cancellation of more than 700 school improvement plans, which would have in part dealt with concerns over this unsafe concrete. Um, what's been the impact of that decision of scrapping BSF on schools and also in this, this present rack crisis? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that BSF is now being talked about again. I worked on a lot of these projects when I graduated as a student architect um, because it was a boom sector for the industry and we were genuinely felt that we were improving the nation again. The key driver of a lot of these projects was not the replacement of materials as such, but a careful assessment of the physical and spatial qualities of existing schools, exploring how they might be reconfigured to better enable new forms of teaching to take place. It was often a very subtle process, redistributing facilities on existing sites and using minor upgrade works and considering how minimal new building could be used to uh, improve the school facilities. But this left people wondering where so much money was actually going. 
BSF was criticised by Gove at the time it was scrapped for having layers of needless bureaucracy, for which I agree, at least in part. But the problems lay in the procurement rather than the design process. Remember all the talk of government quangos wasting money? And for younger listeners, a quango is a quasi-autonomous non-government organisation. And building schools for the future resorted to private finance initiatives to deliver these, otherwise known as PFI. And this is also the era of the three-letter acronym, or the TLA. Um, These partnerships were created with the aim of delivering long-term profit over about 30 years to private sector investors, which saw schools as a source of revenue. BSF also suffered from a long and protracted multi-stage procurement process for design and tendering, which seemed to reinvent the wheel for every project. Their designs were based on good planning and proper consultation using research and collaboration with teaching staff to ensure that the schemes were appropriate for the school's future needs, rather than a generic response, which can more often than not be wasteful and redundant. But this takes time and resources, creating enormous design consultation teams, costing more at the outset and slowing delivered results. So it was seen as inefficient in the immediate term for the delivery of these projects. There was also little sharing between architects and delivery teams concerning best practice or feedback loops, which, much like the post-war schools building programme, could have actually boosted the efficiency of delivering these schemes. But one upside was that the contracts for these projects were intended to make a specific allocation for maintenance, meaning funds couldn't be reallocated elsewhere, as is currently happening. The careful reconsideration of existing fabric, which underpinned the BSF process, is ever more needed now. If we can make the most of our current resources and think about how strategic interventions could be made to maximise improvements. If we compare this to DKCM's brilliant Harrow Arts Centre where the architects were actually asked to design a shiny new centre, but instead opted for reconsideration of the existing buildings and how these could be made better use of. It was a win for the climate emergency, but also the financial benefit of the client. They saved £1.2 million not having to decant into porter cabins whilst the work was undertaken. And a resurgence of such smart, creative thinking could benefit all involved. I genuinely believe that this approach is one that we could learn from and should celebrate across different sectors by valuing maintenance and care over endless cycles of consumerism, construction and demolition. So with RAC, we really need to use ingenuity to determine how these materials might be swapped out or augmented to reduce the risk of failure rather than simply resorting to demolition, which would have a huge impact on teaching capacity and financial outlay for years to come. So we're running up to a general election Polls are showing that Labour is in a position to win a majority, so political upheaval on the horizon, potentially. Um, What has the Labour Party been saying about this rack crisis? Um, Do you feel like there might be a big shift, big change in the solutions that are being proposed to this? Because it certainly seems like it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue as we go ahead. Indeed. I mean, I'd really love to know more about what they're thinking of doing. But at the moment, it seems to just be resorting to name calling and buck passing in Parliament, which is truly infantile on both sides. This issue needs serious and rigorous research to solve efficiently, rather than be used as political football for scoring points. And then what does that look like in terms of taking the politics out of it? We've really got to be serious about how much investment is needed in capital projects at the moment and in terms of long-term maintenance because of being at this end of lifespan of the post-war building programme and thinking about how that's actually going to be funded regardless of which government is in power, that money is going to need to come from somewhere. And no one is really talking about that as a serious thing. They're trying to pretend that it's not going to happen and therefore not making the strategic and quite painful decisions about how that's going to be delivered in the long term. 
While the recent media frenzy has largely surrounded schools in the UK, uh, RAC was used extensively throughout UK and Europe from the mid-50s to the 1990s. However, no one actually knows exactly how many buildings were affected. Uh, in addition to the 147 schools, which the government published late last week, there are 41 hospital buildings known to contain RAC and an unknown number of courts and prisons, which may also be at risk. So similarly, experts have raised concerns over the prevalence of RAC in social housing. Uh, and in the past few days, reports have emerged that the Houses of Parliament, both Heathrow and Gatwick airports, and the University of East Anglia's iconic brutalist student housing, known as the Ziggurat, all contain this unsafe concrete. So Ruth, quite a staggering range of buildings are potentially going to be dragged into this crisis. Is this going to be just the start of years of headlines and scandals surrounding the use and maintenance of these public, private and sector buildings? What's it going to look like? Yeah, you're right. It's quite a daunting range. And yeah, fire stations, libraries, housing blocks, uh, they're all going to have some aspect of this present in their structures at some point. We just have to look for it. The NHS is actually quite far ahead of the game because they've already embarked on a program of remediation that was due to be completed in 2030. But I am really concerned for Lasden's UEA campus because I don't feel like we have the knowledge about how this can actually be dealt with, as well as about how that might impact on the design of the structures themselves. Hopefully, as for Lasden's other great icon, the National Theatre on the South Bank, where Rack was found backstage, they've managed to survey this and have found it to be safe, so there isn't any work that needs to be done. So obviously, there's a lot of investment and surveying that needs to be undertaken, and there's a lack of workforce who are available to undertake that. So it might be a short-term disruption, but hopefully a long-term. In the long-term, this isn't actually a catastrophe of post-war architecture. But Hannah Loftus, who's a director of an architecture practice, Hat Project in Colchester, which is incidentally one of the highest concentrations of RAC-affected schools in the country, was saying on Twitter that it's just a matter of time before RAC becomes the next cladding scandal affecting insurance premiums and the whole property sector. And this is going to become a lot worse. I think the other interesting thing is about how it's affecting theatres. Um, the Forum Theatre in Stockport, the Orchard Theatre in Dartford, the YMCA Theatre in Scarborough and the Royal and Derngate Theatres in Northampton all closed indefinitely at the moment until they can get similar assurances that the National Theatre has had. And the stories here are underplayed by the media in preference to the focus on schools, but the arts sector is still in recovery from shutdowns over COVID and really needs central investment to help protect these cultural resources. The word remediation has been put around quite a lot. Yeah, what, is, what does that actually look like in terms of the disruption to a building and the cost? This is a really good question because it's definitely going to be on a case-by-case -case basis and that's where the surveying it becomes incredibly important. It could be just a really simple switch out. It could have to be something which is much cleverer about how like aspects of the structure are going to have to be replaced and therefore decanting people out of those buildings whilst the work is undertaken. So to be able to put a price on it is really hard and I think this is why uh, the government is holding back from sort of making these promises about saying you know we'll pay what it costs but they've got no idea what it's going to cost until that research work has been undertaken we know as we talk a lot on our podcast about the um, the impact of demolition on design and architectural heritage there's been various instances in the past where the need to upgrade buildings whether it's to make them more environmentally efficient or bring homes up to decent home standard has then been used to stack up an economic case and say it's simply not cost effective to refurbish. We need to demolish this structure. How do you see that potentially playing out in this crisis? Because there are some who might say 
yeah, this is proof that we need to demolish a whole load of 20th century buildings. Yeah, this is a really important point because we're going to have to understand and advocate for the retention of those structures, not only from a historic point of view, such as the work that's been undertaken by the 20th Century Society, but also from a climactic point of view. So organisations such as Letty and ACAN really thinking about how they have worked beyond what the government's recommending to set a new agenda for best practice about how we can reuse existing structures and how we can stop this incredible wastefulness, which we are under threat of, because obviously the easiest solution is just to knock it down and build again, but it doesn't solve the problem. Across England, 147 schools have now been revealed to contain RAC. Um, what's the impact been on the children, families and teachers affected? Like, what are we hearing? It's a really good question because I think we're talking a lot about the buildings, but we're forgetting about the people who use the buildings. And the biggest immediate impact is going to be on teachers. This group was uh, part of the frontline workers during the pandemic who've once again been pressed into service on the cusp of the new academic term, with the stress of the concern for their students' welfare and scrabbling to redistribute classes into safe buildings or flip their teaching to hybrid format. And anyone who's experienced or delivered teaching over COVID knows this isn't just a case of running the same sessions online. There's different parameters for delivery and different forms of pedagogy that they need to introduce. So this is a lot of work that they're having to undertake really quickly. Surprisingly, given all the Ferrari in the past week, and most likely due to those teachers' valiant efforts, most students are pretty much unaffected in the schools which have rack. 104 schools are actually on face-to-face as usual, though I assume they've been moved to other parts of the building or other parts of the site. Four schools are fully remote and 19 have flipped to online and in-person hybrid teaching, while 17 have delayed the start of term. But obviously that has a massive impact on parents as well. Like who is actually going to step in for the childcare? What happens to people who are trying to work at the same time? So this is an incredibly stressful situation for these parents. And given the enormous concentration of schools which have been found to have rack in Colchester, in Essex, I would imagine there's an enormous community there which is really struggling at the moment. But for context, let's consider the scale of the issue because the Department for Education stated two years ago that there's 24,413 schools in England. And I say specifically England in comparison to the figures that have been released for RAC and we're still waiting for the figures for Scotland and Wales. But this is a very small percentage. It's 0.6% of schools. So we're recording this podcast more than a week into this crisis. And it's interesting to see where the discourse has gone. So uh, Nicholas Boyce-Smith, who's the chair of the think tank Create Streets, wrote an article on the news site Unheard, um, where he used the example of a partial collapse at Ronan Point, that's a residential tower in Newham in East London, a collapse that happened in 1968. He used that example to argue that post-war architecture was, quote, reckless, end quote, and its architects, quote, arrogant, end quote. Um, He goes on to attack both the aesthetics of modernism and also the safety concerns around RAC to bolster this argument. Um, Ruth, what do you make of this attack on post-war architecture in the whole emanating almost immediately after RAC becomes a big issue? Yeah, it's very convenient, isn't it? (laughs) It was a very curious piece. Um, I did read it and found it was based on the kind of false equivalence between Ronan Point and the rack crisis that we have at the moment. There's a brilliant film by Adam Curtis called The Great British Housing Disaster that was released in 1984, which demonstrates what happened in Ronan Point and how this 
failure happens for completely different reasons. Although the outcome is the same, as in the structural issues of failure and collapse, um, are equivalent. It's not a beneficial comparison to make if we're going to resolve these issues, because it wasn't about reckless or arrogant architects, but it Ronan Point happened because of cost cutting and lack of quality control in procurement and construction. And portraying otherwise is evidence of either a willful or a naive misunderstanding of the systems at play. He does make a point. This is all found in modernist buildings. Rack might be found in modernist buildings because of the timescale that Rack was produced and the timescale that modernist buildings were produced. But there are other materials. I mean, the problem with the Grenfell Tower was not because of the post-war housing block. It was because of the contemporary additions to that housing block that caused the fire and the adaptations that were made through its refurbishment, such as where the gas pipes were cut, um, where the boilers were positioned, which stopped people getting out, such as the kind of programmatic information about how you should evacuate that building not being passed on. to narrow it down and blame just one thing definitely means we're going to overlook the things that we should be learning from these scenarios if we're going to actually make a more sustainable and equitable future. I mean, yeah, having said that, Boy Smith, his article has really taken social media by storm. You know, clearly a lot of readers either disagree with it strongly or even agree with it strongly. You know, like this is really tapping into an important debate. He went on to describe modernism as, quote, all total nonsense, baloney, unevident, spurious, faux science, a triumph of assertion over observation, of faith over facts, of hope over reality, end quote. He proceeds to place blame on architects, naming Le Corbusier for disregarding the aesthetic preferences of the public um, and this kind of blind faith in new materials, okay? Um, what's your take on this? I mean, how much responsibility do architects have for the safety of materials used in their designs? I work with and have a strong interest in a lot of architecture. I mean, materiality is a big part of it. And architects are constantly bombarded by material suppliers and specifiers and other things. And they do have a power to choose, you know, um, or, or don't they? <laughs> yeah, maybe you can challenge that. I do think it's kind of ironic that these remarks cropped up about modernism being unevident, spurious, faux science in the context of this article um, and tagging in a guy who actually died in 1965. Anyone who thinks that there is a blind faith in the architectural design of buildings need to appreciate the demands of the Revised Building Act, of Construction Design Management Regulations, another three-letter acronym, CDM, and the Hackett Review, which came out of the Grenfell Inquiry, to better understand how responsibility is distributed and the processes which such decisions go through before they hit the public realm. I strongly recommend that Nick might benefit from studying the outcome of the Grenfell Inquiry to understand what's really going on. Ruth, you've been on the crit. This is your opportunity to critique the school's estate and the way it's been stewarded. What's your final verdict? What's your word of wisdom? I think we've got to stop focusing on the issues which grab headlines and really undertake a much more kind of like rhizomatic, careful and methodical understanding of the greater systems at place. Stop trying to like finger point um, and really get to the core of where these problems lie to make sure that we actually understand how we can avoid them again in the future. As part of that, we've also got to foreground the climate emergency because, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks in particular, um, that this is going to have an absolutely catastrophic impact on humanity, on this planet as we know it. And the idea of like carrying on in the business as usual sense is definitely like completely out of the window at this stage. So we have to have a radical rethink of how we build, how we rebuild, how we maintain and care for our buildings, which definitely breaks that system of consumption, demolition and construction that we're so used to having in the sector. Ruth, it's been absolutely fascinating 
conversation. Thank you for being on the show. How can our listeners engage further with this debate? Well, there's a great article by Shannon Matten in Places Journal called Maintenance and Care from a couple of years ago, which I'd encourage anyone interested in this more subtle revolution that we're going to need to undertake to read. Shannon's so ahead of us in all in so many of these matters. Um, But there's also a couple of interesting events that are happening soon for listeners in London that also confront questions of quality in civic architecture and procurement, thinking about how we can learn from the past as we set a new agenda for the future. One is a talk on women in social housing, which is happening this weekend, organised by the People's Museum in Somerstown and the Diversity Networks of the Society of Architectural Historians of Great Britain. The other is a discussion between Owen Hathley and Mariana Janovich discussing cleanliness and social housing as part of the Design Museum's Design Researchers in Residence programme on the 21st. And I'm very much looking forward to both. been listening to a podcast from Open City made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part by Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to Open City podcasts and to support our wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become a friend of the charity today. The Open City podcast is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.